Okay. Let's just see if I've got a yeah, I've got a recording there. That's good. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Are you recording? I am recording, and we're going. And now, coming to you live from the icy wilds of Chicago and the site of the 2010 Melbourne WorldCon, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! Yay, I, en- I enjoy the view of Melbourne from your window. <laughs> More than I did. It's not the prettiest area. I mean, you know, if I was going out to site a WorldCon, I might try and find somewhere pretty. Well... That's not that's not exactly what I'd call a WorldCon tradition. <laughs> well, actually, I mean, in, in fairness, right, you've got all these people coming, and you've got to put them somewhere, and these places are not cheap. I mean, uh, I'm staying here in this hotel, but I have to say it's courtesy of Family Connections, Gary. Mm-hmm. Well, do you want to explain to our listeners what brings you to Melbourne, a continent away from where you live? It is what I'm, I've come to call the 2014 midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. Last August, not really realizing what I was doing, I, I committed myself to traveling to uh, Melbourne to see Bruce Springsteen for the third and fourth time in a week-long period. So having seen him last Wednesday and Friday in Perth, I am now seeing him tonight and tomorrow night. Unless you receive some sort of an injunction for stalking, perhaps. <laughs> Not this, at this all. Is, I've been no, corresponding I, I, with the stalkers, Gary. I admire that level of, of fandom. I, 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 and, and I, have, I share your taste for Bruce Springsteen, but not perhaps to that extent. Well, I mean, before you say that, you have to realize that... I mean, I have to say, having seen him, it's the best show. I've been going to concerts since I was 10 years old, 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Last Friday show was the best thing I've seen pretty much in my life. Wow. And I was talking to a friend of mine who went on the Saturday night, who's a bit older than me, and he said he'd seen John Lennon perform live in the early 1970s. He'd mm-hmm. seen the Rolling Stones on the Exiles and Main Street tour back in the 70s. He'd seen Bob Marley and the Wailers back in the late 70s. And he said this was the best thing he'd seen in his life too. Hmm. Springsteen is just coming on like a freight train at the moment. It's remarkable stuff. And night after night, it's different. And probably the only thing I genuinely regret about this is I am going to see more shows. And they don't repeat that much, huh? No, they do not. I mean, in three nights in Perth, there were 86 separate song slots across the three nights. Uh Uh-huh. And they played 59 separate songs. Wow. So not a lot of repetition. You get about 30 songs a night and about 10 are stable repeats. Well, you deserve this sort of thing on your midlife birthday. and yeah, as no, I, as not, was, no drugs, I, no, no hookers, no nothing, just some Bruce Springsteen shows. Well, I believe, as, I believe it was Ezra Pound who said you only get so many Springsteen shows in a lifetime. A wise man. He was a wise man. <laughs> but, unfortunately, not a science fiction writer, Gary. And I do believe the last time... We touched base on this. We are doing a science fiction podcast or a science fiction related podcast or possibly a homily about stories from our lives. I'm not sure which. So what's up in your science fictional life? In my science fictional life, I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting my effort to write uh, a column for Locus in order to do this podcast. I've also been preparing a talk which I'm supposed to give at a university in a few weeks. And... 
one of the things that always comes up when you're talking about science fiction to, well, let's be honest, outsiders, yeah. people who don't necessarily share your commitment to it or your passion for it, uh, or your, or for that matter, even your wish that it would get better, then, then, then you start automatically, you have to, I have to consciously back away from the defensive mode, saying, oh yeah, this is better than you think it is. Um, because, first of all, a lot of it isn't better than they think it is. Uh, secondly, they're working from um, a perspective of science fiction, which consists maybe of a few books they read in their childhood, and then Transformers movies. <laughs> you have to overcome that. Yep. Uh, and then you have to try to sort of rationalize whether it has any particular importance or value other than any other literature. And this is where I get into trouble. This is where I, uh, I, I have mixed feelings. Because the old guard, um, and this includes my friend and mentor James Gunn, it includes people like Lester Del Rey, it includes uh, everybody for Heinlein to Asimov, the, the traditional argument in favor of science fiction was that it's different. It's, it's radically, it's, uh, it's fundamentally different from other kinds of literature. It's the only literature that deals with change, with the idea that society will be different. But it's not. It clearly no. isn't. It's the only literature that deals with science. Nope, wrong there too. Um, it's, is it a different way of thinking about things? Is it a different way of plotting things? Um, is it, I, I, I don't know exactly uh, what the answer to that is. But the question I was coming up with, unless you have a comment about that. Well, my main comment about it was, and it occurs to me off the, off the top of my head, not thought through, not scripted, is it's not that it does any of those things that the rest of literature does not ever do, right? Mm. But maybe it uses different tools to do it, different effects to make the same points or different related points. You know? I think that's... I think that is where I'm kind of going in my thinking, that it's... I'm not sure the tools are that different, but the assumptions might be different. The uh, cause and effect sort of things might be different. There's... Um, one, well, one of the classic quotations among uh, great science fiction writers of the past was Theodore Sturgeon's Ask the Next Question. He apparently even in his later years wore a medallion with a letter Q and an arrow through it meaning ask the next question. And I think that mimetic literature asks the next question up to a point, but it's not permitted to go beyond that point. Yeah. And in science fiction you're permitted Science fiction, I, my argument is going to be that science fiction gives you permission to do things that other kinds of literature don't give you permission to do. Per permission or just simply values different things? I mean, because, well, I mean, do you really think that, okay, we can be very, pre I mean, any, any group can be quite precious about its territory, and science fiction and fantasy can be just as precious about its territory as anybody else, and we lay out for ourselves the idea that we're the only people who go for a sense of wonder or, or, or science or gosh wow, whatever else it is, uh, or we're the only people who value it. But those things aren't necessarily true. I mean, really. You know, are they? They aren't. Um, and this is, this is where I lose patience with people who... Uh, I, I, I've always lost patience with people who say, I just can't read science fiction because they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't you want to say which science fiction, I have equal patience with science, equal impatience 
with science fiction readers who say, I can't read realistic fiction. It's all boring and nothing mm. ever happens. It. Um, because the, the, the writers that I like, why, one of the novels, um, I'm not going to give too much of a preview of my review because I haven't even started thinking about writing the review yet. Yep. But Simon Ng's Wolves has all the virtues of a good mainstream novel. The characters are fascinating. The relationships are complicated. There's, uh, there, there's a great deal of depth in, in everything from the setting to the, uh, to the prose. And if you, took, if you extricated the science fiction elements from that novel, you'd still have a pretty good novel. Um, but you wouldn't have as good a novel because there are things, I would say, that the science fiction device, and there are only a couple of science, there's only one major science fiction device in the novel, something called augmented reality. Yeah. Um, that opens up the novel in ways that it couldn't open up otherwise. My point is that if that weren't there, it wouldn't make much difference. And M. John Harrison is frequently written right on that border. Um, where you're not quite sure that this is going to be science fiction and you're not quite sure that if, uh, if it didn't turn out to be science fiction, it wouldn't turn out to be a really fine novel anyway. Well, sure, sure. I, I guess the question thing is, though, that the territory that, that Mike Harrison's writing in, and obviously it sounds like the territory that Simon Ings is writing in, is quite mm -hmm. different from the territory that, say, Paolo Bacigalupi or somebody like that uh, is, is writing in. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, I'm talking around this, but I'm just trying to think, okay. Maybe it's just using different tools to the same effect, you know, so that when a Paolo Bacigalupi mm -hmm. or a, a William Gibson, as he used to, when he's writing quite straight science fiction novels, comparatively, when you're writing straight science fiction novels, you can write important uh, stories or important novels that address significant points and are interesting and worthwhile as well as light and frothy and fun uh, but it's just a, a choice of that toolkit rather than and it's something inherent to it I mean uh, friends of ours would have argued historically that you know that that um, there was something unique and special about science fiction that you didn't get from anything else. Mm -hmm. And that a science fiction novel that was important was important in ways that another novel might not, a mainstream novel might, might not be, a historical novel might not be, a crime novel might not be. And yet, what I found when I spoke to them, or, or, you know, whether, whether it was David Hartwell, who I've had a conversation mm -hmm. or two with about this, whether it was Charles Brown, who I had several conversations about this, None of them could tell me exactly what, you know, I th what that unique element is. Yeah, and that's, this is the problem I'm coming up against because the argument, if we're going, I mean, I, I think there's one distinction we need to make which is purely historical, yeah. that the science fiction that David Hartwell or Charles Brown or, or you and I grew up with yeah. was much more one thing than it is today. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's, it doesn't make any sense to talk about science fiction as if it were monolithic in the way it were in the, up, up through, probably up through the mid-80s. Um, but given the fact that uh, there was that attitude toward core science fiction, let's talk about core science fiction, you use the word important, and I'm trying to ask what is probably a, um, a completely hopeless and insouciant question, <laughs> which is, is there anything important about science fiction? Are there science fiction, I'm not talking about, when I say important, I'm not talking about the best science fiction. 
But the question I'm grappling with right now is what are the, what are the most important science fiction books? Um, I, th I think, and I again had this go around with a couple of people, notably Charles. I think you have to make a decision where you allow that these things can be important. And once mm -hmm. you've made that decision, it's less hard to identify important science fiction novels. You know, like I think Neuromancer is an important science fiction novel. Um, I think it happened at a time when there was a change in the way we think about the future, right? And so I think you're arguing, just to clarify, you're arguing that Neuromancer was important outside the science fiction field. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, okay. I think so. In fact, I think depending on, on your metric for importance, right, mm -hmm. I think it's the most important science fiction novel of the last 50 years. Oh, that's okay. That's a that's a that's a, a very powerful statement. And I will attempt to, ju to justify it. It is the only science fiction novel I can think of in the last fifty years. Mm -hmm. So we're going back to what two thousand uh, nineteen sixty four, the year of my okay. birth, since I was born. The only science fiction novel in my lifetime that reached out beyond science fiction culturally to the. Uh, community at large presenting a view of the future that the community embraced and attempted to, attempted to embody. Right? Science and whatever else actually tried to make Neuromancer come true. Mm. That I believe is probably true and it's certainly um, somebody probably is doing a doctoral dissertation in this right now. It probably would be possible to trace the reputation of Neuromancer um, as it leaked out of the field. I mean, the Neuromancer was published solidly within the middle of the science fiction. It was yeah. an ace special, wasn't it? It was indeed. So, uh, so it was not necessarily mainstreamed in the way publishers try to mainstream novels today, where you have a robo-apocalypse, which is clearly yeah. marketed yeah. completely outside the science fiction. Sure. So it made its way out into the world entirely on its own. And sometime between that 1984 um, publication and something like, I don't know, maybe less than a decade later, there was, I believe, a cover story in Time magazine um, on cyberpunk. Yeah. And so cyberpunk became a movement that clearly sort of leached out of science fiction. And, and I think you're right. I think it changed people's attitudes as to what the web could be. It changed, it certainly changed, it created the geek outlaw archetype, oh, sure. which is all over pop culture. Now. Well, actually, interestingly, too, I mean, you were talking about what's important and what makes things important and saying science fiction isn't necessarily special. But yeah. consider this, though, right? Neuromancer's achievements are extra-literary, right? Mm -hmm. It's a good novel, but to go back and read it, I don't think it's that brilliantly written. I don't think it's that startlingly original. I've certainly seen any number of younger critics go back and, well, not go, encounter the book for the first time 20, 30 years after it came out and not understand why it was so startling. Right? Mm -hmm. So then its actual merit comes down to, well, not its sole merit, but certainly it, it, its impact is based on its language choice. It's based on its vision of the future. Mm -hmm. It's based on what can be extrapolated in that kind of a way. Now, the only parallel that I can immediately think of, without having done any research at all, that corresponds to Neuromancer is On the Road. Interesting. Interesting comparison. Yeah. Okay. I, I think they have a lot in common, not in, in literary terms at all, 
but in cultural terms, I think they have similar. In in creating a kind of generational attitude, because yeah, yeah. Um, because on the road is a good example. It's a very good example, I think, because it uh, it clearly again it came from within a particular movement. It came from within the beat movement, which was. Uh, a kind of curiosity. I mean, interestingly enough, the Beats were treated as uh, as oddball offshoots of mainstream culture in much the same way science fiction writers <laughs> were. But but on the road, on on the road, exported that attitude, yeah. uh, that sensibility to the culture at large, and it's still there. And it was still there with Ken Kesey. And the road novel is now virtually a subgenre of literature everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so, so Neuromancer is a good example. Now, now, if I started thinking of um, things that are often cited, this is this is one of the things I'm concerned about: is the people who want to defend science fiction on this basis are almost always choosing the wrong things to talk about. Mm -hmm. Because uh, we, we we love to go nugget hunting. We lo love to unearth things like, all right, the term atomic bomb was coined by H. G. Wells in 1914, and we don't bother to look at the fact that. Nobody paid any attention to that <laughs> all the time. Twenty, I think, twenty years later, Leo Zillard, who was you know working on on the first atomic pile, I think he said he had read the novel twenty years after it came out. But these wonderful things we pull out of the past, when you look at them, had no cultural impact at the time at all. No. Well, I mean, I've not. I'll ask you this. I mean, did was it Carl Capek's uh, coining of the term robot actually have any impact well, at the time? Uh, may have had some impact in Czechoslovakia, but in Czechoslovakia, the word robot was already there. It just means worker, I believe. Okay. Uh, but no, it was. Uh, and uh, by the way, I actually saw a performance of R U R once, yeah. and uh, it's long. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I and, and it's it's a labor relations thing that you know, it's 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 the same basic kind of attitude that. Um, um, Fritz Lang's Metropolis had. Now you could argue that Fritz Lang's Metropolis may have had some impact, but it's really hard to measure that impact in any particular way. Mm. Uh, when you talk about cultural attitudes, I like that approach because what I was looking at was can science fiction actually generate policy decisions? It's clear, for example, that Kim Stanley Robinson in his Washington Science in the Capital trilogy wanted to call attention to very specific things that were before the National Science Foundation. Mm. He wanted to call attention to global warming, and he may have done some of that. But when I went back for the, and, and tried to think if there's some science fiction work that's had huge amounts of immediate policy impact, I couldn't find one. Well, I, I, okay, sure, but l let me sort of come at that from a side angle and ask you, before we judge science fiction on failing to affect policy beyond the kind of backroom discussions that science fiction writers sometimes get into in, in think tanks and stuff, mm. if, you, if you take that environment away from it, does mainstream literature do that? You know, like, is, 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 is this a task that, it, that is being undertaken generally? I mean, how often? I mean, yes, art can influence culture because it influences the way people mm. think about something, right? But how often does this functionally happen? How often does a novel change the zeitgeist or one particular view, you know, the right person's point, point of view? Uh, and I'm not sure. Um, I, I guess, you know, sort of Alvin Toffler maybe did it or whoever else. I'm sure uh, Heller maybe with Catch-22 or something. And awesome. that, hmm? I th I th it, no, it, in, in terms of specific policy influence, it's very difficult to find any literature that has much sure. of that. 
Uh, you can find, because I was looking at this in the sustainability class, it's, uh, in, in, in the United States, there seems little doubt that Uncle Tom's Cabin, not a very good novel, by the way, really spurred the abolitionist movement. Yeah. Uh, whether it had anything to do with the Civil War, I don't know. It's pretty clear that the, what we now call the Food and Drug Administration in the United States was an outgrowth of an agency, which was an outgrowth of an agency, which was an outgrowth of an inspection uh, on, on meatpacking that was, that was called by, the president, by President Theodore Roosevelt in response to Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, mm -hmm. which interestingly enough wasn't even the focus of the novel. Um, but the, looking at science fiction works is different from looking at science fictional ways of thinking. So the one science fiction passage I can find, not a science fiction book, but a passage of pure science fiction that had that radical impact, maybe the last book to have that radical impact, was in 1962 and it was Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. Okay. The opening chapter of Silent Spring is a post-apocalyptic portrait of a small Midwestern town with no insects, no birds, the crops are failing, the animals are dying, the people are diseased, uh, and, and you, you can just see civilization grinding. It's, it's only a short chapter. Yeah. It's pure science fiction. And my argument is this. My argument is that it's, uh, Rachel Carson was a well-known nature writer by the time this book came out. She wrote beautifully. She was one of those people who could write about oceanography in a poetic way. And even though the rest of the book is full of all kinds of persuasive statistics and studies and, um, and, and, and scientific data about the dangers of DDT, which is really what she was trying to do. She was trying to stop the use of DDT. My argument is that the book became a national bestseller, got serialized by The New Yorker because of that science fictional vision of the future that she framed her whole argument in. Mm -hmm. In other words, that's something that people can identify with much more than they can identify, obviously, with the statistical and biological and, uh, and chemical arguments that the rest of her book was. So, so my argument now becomes maybe not, maybe very few specific works of science fiction have had that kind of um, effect on culture, but science fictional kinds of thinking has had a lot of effect. Sure. And sometimes sure. It's, sometimes yeah. it's located in science fiction and sometimes not. And I can see that on two levels as well because there's the obvious trace it to something like that, that particular work or an attempt like Science in the Capital, the Stan Robinson series, mm. or there is the actual, I mean, and it's, it is a way of science fictionally thinking. Uh, the, the way that so many science fiction writers get involved in think tanks and all this kind of stuff and bring their thoughts and ways of thinking to policy background kind of decisions the kind of things we don't mm -hmm. see so i mean i can see sort of a way first of all that you've got this direct mechanism that we don't see much about and then these indirect subtle literary me mechanisms and then it's confused within the field as well about how we talk about important because there's important on a broad cultural level which is what we're talking about uh -huh. And then the perhaps more inward-looking, for one of a better term, uh, important in science fictional terms, texts. And those are the ones we tend to see more internecine struggles or over as people sort of quibble about, well, actually, this is important, that's important. And then mm. maybe a sneering, well, what's important anyway? Um, without there ever being anything resolved, and then someone says that some people are trying to get all canonical about it and talking, you know, there's a bunch of old guys trying to just, you know, shore up their political positions and the, the, the conversation dwindles out. 
Well, I think I think some of the defense, and 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 I don't want to blame any particular old guy for having made this argument. <laughs> some of that defense is 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 a is a way of avoiding the question of whether science fiction is any good as literature. These are two separate questions. Of In other so, words, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, 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 you can argue that while well, science fiction uh, promoted a certain way of thinking and that people like NASA or people like uh, the, uh, the old Atomic Energy Commission would bring science fiction writers into think tanks because they wanted that way of thinking. Yeah. I think that's a valid argument. I think that, you know, when I remember, I think, I think it was uh, somebody, I think it was Greg Benford who described, I think he and some other people had been in, involved in trying to figure out signage for uh, nuclear waste storage and salt mines deep in the Nevada desert or okay. something. And the question was, um, okay, if you've got a 30,000 year half-life on radioactive material, you have to figure out some kind of a sign that, a warning sign, that will be readable to any conceivable evolution of language in the next 10 or 20,000 years. That's a purely science fictional question. Sure, it is. It's a real deep time question, yeah. It's a, it's a classic deep time question, and of course they're going to bring science fiction uh, writers in on that. Uh, and I think that's a legitimate use of science fiction. What I'm, not, what I'm much more skeptical about, frankly, um, is this recently announced partnership of NASA with Tor. Um, NASA has decided to... Um, I, I, I'm not exactly sure how it works. NASA's not putting any money in this, but they're, they're co-sponsoring in some ways a series of hard SF novels um, and, and making NASA scientists available to the authors uh, to make sure that all the calculations are right and that sort of thing. And the first couple of books they've announced are really not very impressive. Um, because in the first place, a Greg Benford or a Greg Bear or a David Bren or a Paolo Bacigalupi or a Werner Vinge don't need NASA scientists to tell them how to work out the math. No. And if they do, they have access to them anyway, probably. If they do, they have access to them anyway. Uh, but but, but this, is, this is the idea to use science fiction as a way of promoting public awareness of NASA. And I, frankly, without having read the first couple of novels they've commissioned, one is by William Fortune, uh, former collaborator with Newt Gingrich, uh, and the other one is by apparently a romance writer whose name I forget, that strikes me as being um, an interesting marketing kind of ploy from uh, from Tor and NASA together, but a really bad idea in terms of what science fiction ought to be doing. I, I would agree. I would also say the thing that's almost always disappointing about, about these kind of things, and I've seen it done in the past, parallel kinds of things, is that it's never the right writers writing the books. You know, if you were to sit there and go... Mm -hmm. Can I look around science fiction and find someone to partner with NASA to come up with a mind-blowing kind of a book? Those people are never on the list to write them. No, they aren't, because fact, those people can be on the list because they don't need that. No, it almost always seems that the kind of people you get on that list are the friends of frontline hard SF writers who are getting a writing gig on the side. Could be. I'm not sure who those people are. Um, but and this is not entirely new, by the way. No, I mean, there no. was, um, but but by and large, if you go back and look at the fiction that was sort of co-sponsored, if, if that's the word, um, there was a NASA, uh, there, there was a, a a former, I don't know, NASA executive or maybe, maybe an aerospace industry executive who wrote a novel with all kinds of input back in the early '60s. Uh, 
And the novel is called Not in Solitude by Kenneth F. Gantz. Nobody, I think, has ever heard of Kenneth F. Gantz since. I'm pretty sure the novel has completely disappeared. I've never uh, heard of him, yeah. But it was, a, it was a science fiction book club selection, which is the only reason I knew it. I was a member of the science fiction book club then. And I thought, it's, it was a workmanlike, first on Mars kind of thing, the sort of novels that a guy named Rex Gordon used to write. Undistinguished, after two or three years, nobody was going to read it. It was the science in it, the uh, technology in it was dated almost immediately. Completely uninteresting. Uh, and I don't, even though NASA needs public support, I suppose, because it's obviously in, un, un, under a lot of budgetary constraints, the idea of any kind of sponsored science fiction strikes me as just having completely the wrong idea of what science fiction is. And, I mean, can you imagine the next step private industry moves into? We get Monsanto science fiction novels. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. I can. I mean, speaking of someone who was approached directly once or twice to edit hard SF themes anthologies for companies that were producing hard SF products... Yeah, I can imagine exactly what it was like. I mean, yeah. I was once I was approached certainly to edit a an anthology of space elevator stories by a company yeah. that was involved in space elevator technology. Um, parentheses, one of these NASA sponsored novels is a space elevator novel. Of course it is, because it's it's the kind of yeah. uh, technology that's on the cusp at the moment and has been for a while. Um, even though I mean, cusp is probably the wrong term, but it's certainly mm. incipient. Uh the problem with it is there's no story to tell if you are pro the technology. You know, uh, I was you know I remember saying to them, well, I've got to come up with 14 or 15 stories to fill it, you know, to to fill out this book, mm. and there are only like maybe three or four stories you can tell. You know, like you complete building the uh, space elevator, yay! You start building the space elevator, yay! There's some drama on the space elevator, yay! Or the space elevator fails. Mm. And they're going, well, we're pro the space elevator, so we can't have the space elevator failing. No. Yeah. Okay. We, don't, we don't really want drama on the space elevator because that's not the way we, we want to talk about people. So there. And that leaves simply heroic little stories of finishing. And, it's a, and, and that's what happens in these kind of environments. Everything gets sort of closed off and you get a very slanted element. So th those things can't be very effective. Um, I guess this is really drifting far away from your point about how science fiction can be important not really, no, not really, because of it, it's, it's turning science fiction into kind of um, uh, early, early Soviet hero engineering stories, yeah. of which there were some, and, uh, and of which Russian science fiction writers very quickly backed away from, obviously. But, but, but that's, you know, that's trying to use science fiction for something which it's never done very well in the first place. No. Uh, and and, and that, that's what I think. I, I think the real misconception that we're fighting against when we're trying to talk to the general culture, the general public about science fiction, isn't that they think it's all Transformers movies or that they think it's all uh, Star Wars and Star Trek and that sort of thing. It's that they believe it's exactly that. It's a kind of um, you know, corporate uh, uh, celebration of of new inventions. In other words... And, yeah. Which is an idea that, that Gernsback certainly embraced when he was starting out. I don't know. I think actually that the public perception of science fiction has shifted. They now think it's Transformers or Doctor Who or Star Trek. So in, in a sense, they're thinking it's now time travel or space opera and nothing terribly substantial beyond that. That's the average world at large of, of, of science fiction. It is, in fact, 1950s SF dressed up. I would add to that, 
Um, well, I don't know. I, I don't know if I did. I was going to say I would add to that the dystopian tradition now because of the wild success of the Hunger Games and the Hunger Games movies. But I'm thinking more and more that the general public doesn't view dystopia as a subset of science fiction. No, and I was gonna, actually I was going to say there's a number of things that, that are in that sort of territory. It's quite interesting. Uh, I mean, we're talking about neuromancer. The thing that's changed probably in the general public's view of most of the kind of things that are addressed in Neuromancer is that the general public doesn't see that as science fiction anymore. You know? True. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been watching Person of Interest. Mm -hmm. right? Now, Person of Interest is a contemporary uh, thriller, it's a you know, thriller TV, you know, crime thriller show. I watch it occasionally. Mm -hmm. And it is science fiction, really. Yeah, well, it's, absolutely. It's based about around artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. around intense surveillance of society. Or, I mean, it's a brave new world with a shine on it, uh, as run by artificial intelligences. This you know, is. I'm glad you brought that because I've been uh, I, I've been thinking about that series and and some others that, of, of crypto science fiction. That is, the series doesn't work without science fictional technology being introduced into real institutions. Mm -hmm. Uh, the CSI series are all like that. These people have enormous high-tech labs that no crime scene laboratory in, in the country has. But person of interest in particular strikes me as being fascinating But because, um, I mean, I, when I first watched that, and I haven't watched a lot of them, but I, it's, they're likable characters. And my first thought when I watched, I watched the first one was, whole, was Paul McCauley's novel, Whole Wide World, mm -hmm. which was, as far as I know, the first major science fiction novel, probably the first major novel, to address the issue of the almost universal surveillance going on in London and in England with cameras everywhere. And Macaulay's novel was something of a warning. There was, there, there's this 1984 edge to it. And suddenly, in, in Person of Interest, and I don't know how popular the show is in um, Australia, but it's very popular here in the States, this is a show in which absolute, total invasion of your privacy is treated as heroic. Yes. As long as it's not the government doing it, as long as your privacy is being invaded uh, by that guy from um, Lost and, and the guy who played Jesus, as long as they're spying on you, it's okay. But if, if the government were doing it, we'd be up in arms. But also, I mean, look at who they are. I mean, setting aside the, the military archetype, you, the, the show is basically driven by a secretive billionaire hacker who built an artificial intelligence for the government to spy on everybody and then uses it to save people in his spare time. Exactly. It's, How is that not the most science fictional television show out there? It's completely science fictional, absolutely. I, 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 I totally agree with you about that. What, what strikes me as odd about it is the ideology of it. This mm, show oh, becoming so popular at a time when you know, we're concerned about the National Security Administration in the United States doing exactly what these guys do. <laughs> It, it, the thing is that, though, at least it's querying a lot of this stuff now as it moves on. In the early phases of the of the story, I think it was played very much as small outsider trying to fight the government, and they they put a lot of the responsibility for the machine onto the government. And it was this the, these two guys who are out there saving everybody, even though the government didn't care, mm -hmm. despite the fact that one of the fundamental setups I think in the show is completely unbelievable. You know, mm -hmm. well, okay. The, the premise of the show goes something like this: the government is scared by nine eleven, which it was. The U.S. government, the U.S. government, then tries to get really invasive surveillance 
software put together to monitor mm-hmm. the internet and all that kind of thing, which it did. Yeah. And then it succeeds. Now, in, in this iteration where it succeeds, right, this black box closed off computer, which becomes artificially intelligent, um, is sending social security numbers to the government with no explanation as being the terrorists. Mm. And then these other irrelevant numbers, right, which are all about violent crime to our heroes. Mm-hmm. Do you really believe the government would consider hands-on information about violent crime in major cities as irrelevant? It's, it's, it's a gimme. It's one of those things where the, mm. the show just basically makes assumptions about the government which are not uh, believable or, or, or credible for a minute. But I think the po- in terms of the public perception of science fiction, and I think this is a crucial thing, and maybe it may be that Neuromancer was the point of, 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 of shift or the beginning of this shift. Most viewers that I know don't view person of interest or CSI or Criminal Minds, these various super technological crime shows, as being science fiction. And I think one of the reasons is that if you go back to the 1950s, I think people at least thought they had a fairly clear idea of what the science of their time was. Mm-hmm. They pretty much knew that, um, for example, uh, we could put satellites in orbit in the 1950s, and, but we couldn't go to the moon. So that was science fiction. And then we could go to the moon, so then going to Mars was science fiction. The general public had a sense of the limitations of technology. I think that sense has been completely blurred in the last 20 years with information technology. So that when you put together something like person of interest, which, as you say, is very clearly science fictional in all sorts of ways, the viewers, many viewers, are probably thinking, well, that could be happening right now. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Uh, there's, there's always been, that, and that, that segment, that, that pattern of thought, has previously been limited to a, to a, to a reasonably small paranoid subset the people who believe that the moon landing was fake, the people who believe in the Bermuda Triangle and that sort of thing, there's always been that. But now there's a general understanding that we don't have any idea what science does. We have no idea what new disease vectors are being uh, created in laboratories here and there. We certainly don't have any ideas to the extent of information technology. And the vast number of people have got no idea what the, um, you know, what's the, the large Hadron Collider actually doing, right? How much sense does that thing make? Well, exactly. Uh, and who knows? I mean, yes, I understand. I've had it explained to me. But, you know, the general public, they've heard of it. It was on the, in the paper for a little while. And, you know, you look around. I mean, every time there's some new glitzy-looking technology, it blurs with what you see in the movies just enough to be confusing. You know, it's like you see the Crown Corning commercial from a few years ago about, uh, was it Corning Glass or something, about the glass of mm. the future. And then it looks almost exactly like what, Tom Cruise is playing with it in the Minority Report. Mm-hmm. Then you pick up an iPad and you go, well, that's all, all the same. And then Gravity shows up at the movie theater and you think, well, that's not a science fictional movie at all. That's just like today because it looks exactly like what you'd expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the future. I mean, to me, one of the least convincing things that I used to see about you know, futurist stuff were video phones. I was like, who would want a video phone, really? Mm-hmm. And yet here we are and listeners what I mean by here we are is Gary and I have Skype going video on and I can see him sitting in Chicago and he can sit and see me in my Melbourne hotel room Mm -hmm. and and, you know 
here we are. But here's, but this is this is goes goes back again to what science fiction uh, does that futurism doesn't do. Because I used to subscribe to the magazine The Futurist, and mm -hmm. I, I guess it's still out there. Uh, and I gave up subscribing to it because every month there would be these elaborately statistical articles inventing something that I'd read about in this science fiction story from Astounding when I was a kid. And, and they, they, were, they were not thinking about social consequences at all. The video phone is a good example because, yeah, the video phone is, has been around in science fiction probably since Gernsback or some version of it. And it came on the market, I believe, in 1962, and nobody wanted it. Mm. Uh, so culture had to shift to a point where the idea of privacy was diminished, I guess, to the point where uh, people are, 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 are Skyping and FaceTiming and so forth and so on now. Uh, and and that's, that's where science fiction, I think, has really been pretty good, mm -hmm. is, is looking at the social consequences and the behavioral consequences of, uh, of, of, of um, scientific or technological achievement. Sure. But by and large, um, that hasn't tr yet translated into, um, into any kind of public perception of science fiction. I, I mean, I keep waiting for some book like... Um, well, let's say Paolo Bacigalupi's young adult books. I assume they're doing reasonably well. Mm. Uh, I assume his new novel, The Water Knife, will do reasonably well. And that's going to be a kind of test case of science fiction dealing with an immediate, ongoing, currently existing crisis sure. uh, and seeing if people pay attention to it in, in, in that sense. So I should just very briefly co correct a previous podcast. Uh -huh. uh, it turns out The Water Knife is a 2015 book and his next YA book will be out first. Oh, okay, that's good to know. But yeah. So that, so we, we now have to erase oh. the forthcoming books we're looking forward to. We, well, we erase just on look forward to that one. We're still looking forward to it, just looking for looking just further looking forward. forward. <laughs> yeah. Books I'm looking further forward. No, no, there are other books we're looking forward to, but and possibly important books. You know. Well, the point is I don't think we within the field can tell what's going to be important and what's not going to be important. Well, see, if you're going to do that, and I don't disagree with you, what you have to turn around and say is, we've got no idea really what culture is going to be important at the time, by and large. It's only in retrospect you can tell. I mean, you could tell you were excited about Neuromancer in 1984, but you couldn't mm -hmm. tell it was transformative, and now you can look back and see it's genuinely transformative. It's interesting to look at the lifetime of a book's reputation like that, because... Uh, I did not read Neuromancer right after it came out. I mean, I read it maybe a couple of years later. Um, and there were some reviews that were just, I mean, it was a stunning book. It was, it was like, you know, we have not seen the like of this before. Um, and then over a period of time, it becomes the foundation of a whole subgenre and then of a whole subculture. But then, as you mentioned, uh, 40 years on, you have new readers coming to it and saying, I don't get what the fuss is about. Yeah. It's like reading Catcher in the Rye now. Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, that's kind of a boring book. But on the other hand, uh, when I did that uh, science fiction novels of the 50s thing, I got a lot of emails from people who had never read The Stars by Destination before. Okay. And they were just stunned by it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seemed to be as fresh as ever to them. Um, I haven't read it in a while, but there's a lot of energy in that book. And I could see why that would drive you past parts of it that might seem a bit more archaic. Well, I mean, there's, a, there, there's stuff in the book which is just essentially gone out of science fiction mm. since then. The idea of teleportation, the idea of jaunting, you know, 
science fiction in the 50s was fascinated by psi powers and by telepathy and by mutations with psychic energy and, 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 and teleportation. I mean, more than human has teleportation in it. And we've just kind of abandoned that idea, so it seems quaint right now. Yeah. That hasn't, that, you know, that, that's, it, that's one of the tropes of science fiction that basically never caught on. Yeah. Unlike time travel, which is, doesn't even, science fiction doesn't even own anymore. Yeah. There's a certain advantage to asking a question first, because then you get to evade having to provide the answer yourself. Mm-hmm. What are your five most important science fiction books? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, and you're not going to get out of providing the answer yourself. <laughs> Several years ago, I was approached, I was approached by um, well, it was Martin Greenberg, uh, one of our classic anthologists, mm-hmm. uh, to do a book which never came about, but the book was going to be to list the 100 most important science fiction books in order. Oh, okay, in order. And the, so right, right off the, and the whole purpose, of this, there was a series of books like this published, I forget the publisher, there was the 100 most important Jewish people in history, the 100 oh, yeah. most, and, and, and the whole purpose was to rank the books in order to generate furious responses and debate, and that means more people will buy the book, obviously. Yeah. So I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I, I don't remember what I came up for the top five, but I think the number one book I came up with was probably The Time Machine. Okay. And my argument for the time machine is partly that it's it's evolutionary. It's it's a it's a response, a late response, but nevertheless, it's a response to Darwinism. It's clearly a time travel story that involves technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an apocalyptic story. It's an eschatological story. Uh, it's a um, story that deals with um, with class distinctions and and, and class oppression which is a surprisingly common theme in science fiction. Uh, it's a story about an inventor. In other words, it has lots and lots of science fiction themes that would be picked up, not only in time travel stories, but in all kinds of science fiction stories after that. And it was, it was Wells's, you know first major novel. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so would you have a number one? Well, I'm going to make an easy choice. I'm going to say Neuromancer is one that occurs to me in my lifetime. Okay. As, as the most influential, well, one of the top five most influential books I can think of in terms of influencing outside the field rather than into it. Hmm. You know? Because that's really what we're talking about. I mean, you could go back and you could say that, um, well, if I was going to cheat horribly in science fictional terms, I'd say uh, the big Heinlein collection of future history stories uh, would have to be an incredibly influential book. I think you have to look at influence in, in, within certain spheres, I guess, because if you're talking about information technology, there's no argument that Neuromancer was, was sure. hugely important. If you talk about issues like, let's say, for a different issue entirely, uh, the issues of gender identity, I would argue the left hand of darkness significantly changed a lot of people's thinking about that. What about something like The Lovers by Phil Farmer? The Lovers by Phil Farmer, it turns out that, and, and I think there was an article actually by Rob Latham, a, a scholar who now runs the science fiction program at UC Riverside, in which he pointed that there was a lot of discussion, not just Phil Farmer, but there was a fair amount of discussion about sex and uh, exo, I'm not even sure what the word is, um, exogamous uh, relationships. I think that 
had a huge shake-up effect within the science fiction field mm -hmm. because it was published in the pulp magazine in the early 50s. But by the early 50s, we were, you, know, you, you were beginning to be able to get Henry Miller books and things like that. No, maybe not quite. So in other words, I think science fiction discovering sex was important to science fiction. But not to the world at large. But not to the world at large. The world at large thinking that gender is malleable, which is what Le Guin presented as an idea in The Left Hand of Darkness, was a radical idea for the culture at large. Sure. Okay. And I think that science fiction has done a reasonably decent job of, of following up on that. I think what was important about that novel was, even though it's widely reviewed as an important feminist novel, and, and it is, what it really did was it questioned the whole notion of, of gender and sexuality at a time when that sort of thing was barely coming under discussion. How about On the Beach? I was, okay, then, then you're talking about things that were uh, sort of mainstream slash science fiction books. And I've okay. got a whole and that, that's of, a whole other kind of... So Bra Brave New World is in that category, 1984 is in that category, On the Beach, which was probably the best written of the nuclear destruction novels of that period. Um, and, I, 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 and it was very frightening, very upsetting. It was a much, it's a much better novel than Philip Wiley's Tomorrow, which came out about two or three years earlier, which was essentially a civil defense tract. You know, if you have bomb shelters, you won't, you know, you won't yeah. be vaporized, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was naive. I'm curious about how On the Beach may have, res what kind of response it may have gotten in Australia, because Australia was clearly the last bastion of humanity in that book. I don't think I'm the person to answer that. I think someone like Janine Webb is, um, because she, she would have researched it. But my, my guess is it would have had some significant effect. I mean, after all, it was a very uh, popular film based around it, as I recall, with powerful imagery in it. Um, but then I've got to say, I remember being, I was ignorant of it for a very long time. I only really encountered it through Howard Wardrop. Really? Not, not in his fiction, but physically, you know, because he had been vastly influenced by it. I mean, very... Yeah, very profound impact on him, and you know he he spent you know, he carried the lyrics to uh, Walsing Matilda Walsing wallet Matilda. for like thirty or forty years because you know because of that 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 film. I'd love to have had that um, conversation with Howard because I I remember thinking at the time that it was just a powerfully well written novel, and and Neville Shute had been a, a, a an excellent novelist before that. I was. Uh, I, I know that there are editors, there's an editor, John Silbersack was a huge fan of Neville Schutz and wanted to bring his earlier, more realistic novels uh, into print. But one of the things he did that I thought was very powerful at the time was he took the science fiction elements seriously. He worked out the pattern of fallout, he worked out yeah. how this would work, um, and he did that in a way that very few other mainstream novelists did. There were, there were a bunch of novels like that. There was uh, a Pat Frank novel. Um, called Alas Babylon, which was a bestseller. Yeah, right. There was um, Failsafe, which was a huge yeah. political bestseller in which um, the United States and Russia decide to trade cities. We've accidentally sent a, a, a yeah. missile to Russia. None of them were as well written as On the Beach. Sure. As, as a, again, tangential question to this, can a book be um, influential without being read widely? That's an interesting question. Because there are any My, number of works of science fiction or whatever that I could think of that have the ability to be powerful and moving and thought-provoking. Okay. Well, I can imagine individuals being influenced, but they were probably never read in vast numbers. 
Uh, well, or maybe not read outside the science fiction field. Uh, here's a curious example of a science fiction book which seems to have a life beyond the science fiction field. And it's a classic, well-known book to people like you and me. It's the Foundation Trilogy. Mm -hmm. But in three separate articles or interviews or conversations I've had, one, the most recent being in the New York Times about a week ago, the, a, a physicist uh, who's a, a very popular physicist in terms of media named Michio, uh, I think Kaku, said that was his favorite book growing up. Yeah. Uh, and Paul Krugman showed up at the World Science Fiction Convention. It turns out his favorite science fiction book is the Foundation Trilogy. When Newt Gingrich was running for <laughs> president of the United States, I know. <laughs> no, so no, you, no, fair enough, you know. Um, you, you've got a book which has had enormous influence on a presidential candidate. And, and Gingrich is, despite his various bizarrenesses, the most science fictional president, presidential candidate we've ever had. Mm -hmm. He's even written science fiction novels in collaboration with William Forstian, who's yes, now yes, collaborating yeah. with yeah, NASA. Yeah. Um, you've got somebody who's a, who's a conservative political uh, candidate. You've got a liberal economist, and you've got a physicist, all going back to this Foundation trilogy, which, as we pointed out before on this podcast, isn't even a trilogy. No. It's a batch of short fiction. It's a batch of short fiction. But, you know, I think that's what the appeal of it is. Um, and I think this is what Asimov is. Well, short stories or what? Not that they're short stories, but that they are collectively uh, a peon to management. Okay. They're, they're peon to the idea that the future is manageable. Oh, okay, yep. Through statistics, you can understand why an economist like Krugman would love that idea because he depends, his career depends on the pretense that the future is statistically somehow indicatable. Isn't that almost anti-science fictional, the idea that the future can be managed? Um, if you look at Asimov's work, he comes back to that idea, that idea again and again. Not only in the Foundation Trilogy, most people, when they look at the iRobot stories, for example, hmm. um, and they're, they're wonderful stories, Robbie the Robot, and they're, they're all kinds of logical puzzles. The last story in that collection, I'm not talking about the later robot novels, is called The Evitable Conflict, and in which Asimov... If, if I recall correctly, essentially makes the argument would be just as off, just as well off giving the management of our affairs over to robots because they're rational, they're uh, they're not swayed by emotional arguments. Uh, it's essentially, um, if you want to have rational management, you're going to depend upon artificial intelligence to do that. And in that last story by robots, he really was referring to artificial intelligence. See, to me, right. I hear you say that, and the question that goes through my mind is, it makes it, well, was, was Asimov afraid of the future? It sounds like a, a, an, af you know, a, an afraid response, and yet, reading the books, you would never f get that impression. I think the reason you don't get the impression is because Asimov, like some friends of ours, like our mutual friend Charles Brown, believed that science fiction could save the world. He believed that if you reached a broad enough audience uh, with popular enough works, you could convince them of the value of rationality. Yes. And the extreme expression of rationality, of course, would be a mathematical program. Um, so, so the idea must have been very appealing to him. I suspect it might have been appealing uh, to Heinlein. Although, here's, here's the part where the science half of science fiction and the fiction half come in conflict. Yeah. If Harry Seldon's future equations had worked out perfectly, 
there would have been no foundation stories at all. <laughs> the completely depend on these predictions not working. Oh, wow. So the future of science fiction based on the failure of the future of science fiction. That's probably the best point we could come up with to end the podcast on, Gary. That's a good way to end the podcast. That science fiction is at its best when it's destroying itself. <laughs> I think we're going to get out of this alive. I, I'd wondered if we'd get a podcast out. I'll be interested to see how the recording is. But I think we made it through episode 178. Okay, and I hope you enjoy. You've not seen Springsteen yet, so... I well, mean, I've seen him twice. You've not seen him for, not seen him for the 17th time, but you're going out tonight, right? For the fifth... Yes, it'll be my fifth Springsteen show. show, Springsteen show. Having seen him in Oakland in, in 2007, then in Sydney last year, and then twice in Perth. Yes, I will see him tonight in Melbourne. And I've not seen him yet, so I'm excited, so it's going to be great. And then I've got a few things to do. I deliver my best of the year to the publisher uh, in the next 24 hours. Oh. And then I will be on with, read with reading some of those books we were talking about earlier, which don't appear to have American editions scheduled, like Simon Ings's Wolves and Nedia Korafor's Lagoon and those kind of things. And we can come back next week and talk about them. And next week we will be chatting from Chicago and Perth once again, I presume. As we normally do. As the we hot and the cold. Okay. Okay. Until then, take good care, my friend. I'll talk to you next uh, week. Same to you. Okay. Bye. Bye.